Well, our text this morning, as we turn now to the sermon, our text this morning, or whenever it is you happen to be watching this, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Hebrews 7, verses 11 to 19. For you at home, I encourage you to have your Bibles there as we consider this passage together only right at the start. I want to draw your attention to the very end of this passage. I want you to look at verse 19. Verse 19 is where the pastor writing Hebrews brings his thoughts in these eight brief verses to their conclusion. And I think it's where our focus needs to be this morning. Because there in one short phrase in the middle of that verse 19 is something we need to hear today. The pastor says, a better hope is introduced. But on the other hand, he says, a better hope is introduced. And my dear friends, what else could we possibly want to talk about than that on a day like this? What is our hope? Always and in every circumstance, in times of calm and in times of crisis, we must be clear on this question. What is our hope? Because what you hope for drives the way you live. That's never more apparent than when the world you live in is gripped by fear and anxiety. What we've all been seeing and experiencing in recent days has, I think, made clear where our hope is not. Our hope is not in our physical health, brothers and sisters. A virus may take that away from us. That's not enough. That's not enough to take away our hope. Our hope isn't in our physical health. Our hope is not in money we may have been able to save or invest. Economic downturns, probable recessions, crashing financial markets, they may take that away from us. That's not enough. That's not enough to take away our hope. Our hope isn't in money or in any other category of possessions. No, the pastor says the hope we have as Christians is better. It's better than those things, to be sure. So what is it? We've been talking a lot about that hope in our recent study of Hebrews at Christ the King. And in fact, we don't have to go very far back in this sermon to know exactly what the pastor says our hope is and what he means by that word hope in our text this morning. So look back if you have your Bibles there to chapter 6, verses 17 to 20. This was where we were only two weeks ago, gathered here. It seems a lot longer than that. Let's listen to these verses again. The pastor says, chapter 6, verse 17, So, 
when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, the promise and the oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, here it comes, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Strong encouragement. That's what we need in these days. And to have it, we have to know what our hope is, what the promise of God is that he's now sworn to us as the offspring of Abraham. What is his purpose? What is the unchangeable thing of his will? What is it that's always, always, always before us in this life? And the answer, of course, as we said two weeks ago, is salvation. It's life with God in a place. It's the eschatological perfection of the new heavens and new earth, where the defining feature of our everlasting life will be the great hope of the entire Bible. Behold, John writes in Revelation 21, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's our hope, Christian. Always and in every circumstance, in times of calm and in times of crisis. And according to the pastor, what is it that gives us strong encouragement to hold fast to that hope set before us? Well, it's back there again in Hebrews 6, verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Why? How can we have such a hope as that? It's because that's where Jesus has gone, the pastor says. As a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, my dear friends, if you've been with us in our study of Hebrews, I know there's not a lot new in what I'm saying to you this morning, but that's okay. Because in new and troubling circumstances like the ones in which we find ourselves, what we tend to realize is that it's the old truths that matter most. So this morning, as I stand here in a nearly empty room and we are all together only in spirit, let me put that old truth as simply as I can. Whatever you're experiencing today and whatever you're going to experience this week and whatever the future holds, what you can and must hold on to is this, that our only hope in life and death is Jesus. Because it's 
only Jesus who brings us home, you see. It's only Jesus who's our forerunner. It's only Jesus who's already entered in a human being into the very presence of God, making our eventual entrance there a reality as well. And as you well know, that's all true because it's only Jesus who's become our eternal high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Grasping that fact changes your life, friends, because it changes your hope. The basic point, I think, in verses 11 to 19 of Hebrews 7, our text this morning, the basic point this text makes about that fact is that that was always the plan. It was always the plan that this would be the way by which we would be saved, the way all God's people in all times and in all situations, some far worse than ours, would be saved. I do want to treat verses 11 to 19 somewhat carefully this morning, but I don't want to treat it exhaustively. What I most want us to keep in view is that everything these verses say has its goal where we started. A better hope is introduced. I want to take some time at the end of our sermon to reflect on what that should mean in our lives in this moment of history. But let's first survey what's here, trusting that as a result, the point in the end will come through all the more clearly. Verses 11 to 19 are in simply two parts. In verses 11 to 14, we have the pastor's consideration of the insufficiency of the Levitical priesthood. And then secondly, verses 15 to 19 are the pastor's consideration of the sufficiency of the Melchizedekian priesthood, which as we'll see is a category of one, the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the two parts. And in verses 11 to 14, then, the pastor starts by focusing on the insufficiency of the Levitical priesthood. Look at what it says. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one after the order of Aaron? Note the logic the pastor uses. His thought runs this way. The scriptures, and specifically, as we know from last week, Psalm 110, verse 4, speaks of another priest, of a different order of priest, of an eternal priest after the order of Melchizedek. But why would that be, the pastor seems to ask, if the Levitical priesthood was enough? If the Levitical priesthood was itself sufficient to bring about perfection? And of course, you hear what this rhetorical question is driving at. We could turn that question of verse 11 into a statement. The Levitical priesthood wasn't sufficient. If it had been, there wouldn't need to be another priest. That's the point. David wouldn't have said what he did in Psalm 110 about an eternal priest after the order of Melchizedek 
but he did. And so the pastor reasons that must mean the Levitical priesthood wasn't it. It wasn't the end game. It couldn't bring about perfection. I think this will now be intuitively clear, but let me make sure. What is this perfection that the pastor is talking about here? What is it that the Levitical priests couldn't bring about? but with Jesus, the Melchizedekian priest, could. It is the great hope, friends. That's the perfection the pastor has in view, the fulfillment of the promises of God, the unchangeable thing of his purpose. Perfection here could be translated completeness. It's the final goal, not just of our lives, but of all creation. It is when everything has been put into place for the final great purpose to be achieved. And so then, perhaps we more easily see the pastor's point, don't we? The Levitical priesthood couldn't do that. Of course, the question becomes, why not? Why couldn't it? What was insufficient about the Levitical priesthood? That's what we want to know maybe. That's not what the pastor is addressing, at least not directly in our passage, but he will. He'll develop why this is so in the weeks to come. It's clearly implied in our text. The fundamental reason the Levitical priesthood couldn't bring about this perfection is that it could not give us access to God. If our great hope is life with God in a place, the Levitical priesthood could not bring it about. Why is that? It's because the sacrifices the Levitical priests offered never actually took away sin. That's not in our text this morning, but that is what's coming in Hebrews. In fact, it's bigger than that. It's not as though it was because the Levitical priests failed to do rightly what they were supposed to do. No. As our passage hints at this morning, the entire system of which the Levitical priesthood was a part wasn't designed to be permanent. It looked forward. It looked ahead. The temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood descended from Aaron. That wasn't the means by which God would bring about perfection. It moves us to the end, but just listen to Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 4. The pastor makes the point there as clearly as I think he could. Chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make Perfect. You hear the connection. Those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. Verse 3. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And friends, without that, Without the taking away of sins, there can be no true righteousness. And without the holiness required to see the Lord, there can be no entrance into the presence of God. 
where human beings are destined to live as they exercise their rule over the universe that was lost when Adam sinned. We've been telling this story for weeks at Christ the King. This perfection the pastor is talking about in verse 11 is the whole ball game, and it boils down to this. Without the taking away of sins, there is no hope. There can be no fulfillment of the promises. That's the main thrust of the argument in the weeks to come. But before he spells that all out, here in Hebrews 7, the pastor is making only a basic observation. If such perfection could be realized under the Levitical priesthood, why then talk about the arrival of a different one? Why would Psalm 110 verse 4 say what it says? Well, it's because the Levitical priesthood couldn't do those things. It was insufficient. Only watch now in verses 11 and 12. This feels like a bit of a lesser point here, and it is, but it'll become a bigger deal in weeks to come. To make this change in the priesthood, as God has intended for a new priest to arrive, not from the order of Aaron, but from the order of Melchizedek, to make this change means something else has to change too. We see it in the awkward parenthesis in verse 11, and then the pastor spells it out in full in verse 12. In verse 11, the ESV says in the parenthesis, for under it the people received the law. That's fine, but I prefer how the NIV translates it. The NIV says the law given established that priesthood. The point is that the Levitical priesthood existed because of the law. In the Old Testament, the priesthood was given specifically and exclusively to the tribe of Levi. And more specifically, the high priesthood was restricted to Aaron and his sons. You can look back later at Exodus chapters 28 to 30 and see all of that. There is simply no precedent. There is no permission from God for other tribes to bring offerings so that if the priesthood is changed, what else has to change with it? Verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. That's a big deal, but it'll come into focus more later when we move into Hebrews 8. Verses 13 and 14 of our study simply make clear that this is exactly what has happened. The law says only descendants of Levi can be priests, but as verse 13 says, the one of whom these things are spoken, the things of Psalm 110, belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For, verse 14, it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, not Levi. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. You see, Jesus Christ was a descendant of David, who was of the tribe of Judah, not Levi. So then tell me, Pastor, how is it that he can be our priest? The law had established it. Priests come from the tribe of Levi. What can possibly bring about a change in the law? What must be true concerning this other priest? How could the requirement of the law as it pertained to the priesthood be set aside? Well, the answer is coming now in verses 15 to 19, but I'll summarize it for you. The only way that happens 
is if you don't need it anymore. If what the whole thing was a shadow of and pointing towards has now arrived, which is precisely what the pastor argues has happened. So now in verses 15 to 19, the focus turns to the sufficiency of the Melchizedekian priesthood, which happens to be a category of one, namely Jesus Christ the Lord. The main point I'll dwell on is in verse 16, but let's read verses 15 and 16 and then I'll comment. The pastor says, this becomes even more evident that it's a new priesthood has arrived. How can that be? This has become even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, not on the basis of being part of the tribe of Levi as the law stipulated, but rather by the power of an indestructible life. What this priest has done, what this priest has offered, that is sufficient to bring about perfection. That is sufficient to bring about the promises of God, the hope of his people through all time. And how do we know that? That's the last part of verse 16. It's because of this priest's indestructible life. I think the pastor's talking here about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Death could not hold him. Jesus is our high priest on the basis of the resurrection. Only think about this because do you remember when the pastor says, when the pastor says the words of Psalm 110 are spoken to the son who is Jesus? It's at his ascension when he sat down at the right hand of the father. Turn back with me if you would to Hebrews chapter one to see this because it's all there. The point is that it's the quality of the life of the Son of God, the indestructible life that makes Jesus our eternal high priest. So yes, that's the resurrection, but the resurrection happens because the Son of God is eternal. You remember how Hebrews begins, long ago, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by his, the word of his power. And then here's the key thing as we look back now from Hebrews 7. After making purification for sins. Right? That's priestly language. That's what Jesus did on the cross when he offered himself, Jesus, the Lamb of God who died. Yet after that, he sat down, Hebrews 1 says, at the right hand of the majesty on high. In other words, he ascended to the throne. What has to come between death and ascension? Resurrection. And within the context of Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 4, I think that resurrection life is part and parcel of the indestructible life the Son of God has always had. The life of the eternal Son of God wasn't destroyed by the death he suffered on the cross. How could it have been? Whereas all Levitical priests die, 
Jesus Christ is the priest who's triumphed over death forever. As the Son of God, his life will never come to an end, which means that now Jesus Christ, the man, lives eternally as our priest. That's what Psalm 110 verse 4 was actually all about. For it is witnessed of him, the pastor says in verse 17 of our passage, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We come then to the conclusion in verses 18 and 19 where the pastor sums the whole thing up by way of a contrast. For on the one hand, he writes, a former commandment is set aside. It's annulled. The previously required thing has been abrogated. Why? Because of its weakness and uselessness. The law said that priests had to be Levites. That's set aside. It was inherently weak. It was useless. In what sense? Verse 19 tells us in the parenthesis, for the law made nothing perfect. The Levitical priesthood was part of the law, but the Levitical priesthood couldn't bring about the perfection God has ultimately purposed. As we saw earlier, it could not provide the final cleansing from sin that was required. Therefore, the pastor concludes, it was weak. It was even useless. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. With this high priest, perfection is now in sight. The promises of God will come to pass. Our great hope is secure. And so we can, therefore, through that hope, even now draw near to God with confidence and boldness. This is the teaching of verses 11 to 19 of Hebrews 7. As I said at the beginning, everything that those verses have to say has as its goal where we started. A better hope is introduced. Christian, that is your hope. So let me then ask this as we come to the end of our time this morning. What will that hope mean in your life this week? And I do mean this week, <laughs> right? Because we're all facing a great deal of uncertainty. How are we to live if we get this? And I don't mean if we get every in and out of the complex argument that's there in verses 11 to 19. But I mean if we grasp this nature and the absolute security of this hope we have in Jesus. It won't just mean, I submit to you, a sense of inner peace. Though that surely will be there. No, it will mean more than just that. It will mean you and I are freed to act in love. That's what this great hope will bring about in our lives. Earlier in the sermon, we linked the hope mentioned in our text with that same concept in verse 19 of chapter 6, the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. But there was one other place where we've seen this concept of hope recently. Just a little further back in chapter 6, verses 10 to 12. 
There the pastor spoke of the desire he had in verse 11 that his hearers would have the full assurance of hope until the end. And do you remember what it was the pastor says will give such assurance of the hope set before us? What it is that shows that we've really got it? That the law itself has been written on our very hearts? Or ask it this way, what does living the life of faith and patience that inherits this hope look like? It was verse 10, for God is not unjust to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Dear friends, what greater application could there be in these days than this? If the reality of our passage this morning has settled into our hearts, if we've embraced the better hope, if that's the sure and certain anchor of our souls, then what will be the defining characteristic of our lives? It will be love. We will be people characterized by love of others, and I say, even especially now. Even at times when it poses some level of risk to ourselves, I will say. There are many applications here for us. If you're not someone who's particularly vulnerable to this virus, don't dismiss it as not your problem. Act in love towards those who are. If you're among those who have resources and choices enough such that you can weather whatever's coming relatively easily, don't use those things to prioritize yourself to the exclusion of others. Instead, ask, how can I act in love? How can I make voluntary, personal sacrifices of time, prayer, financial resources on behalf of those in need. Fear will drive us to hoard all we can and keep others out. Resist that temptation. We may not be able to gather as we normally do on Sundays, but we can still be the church for others. In our family, in our neighborhoods, in our various communities, Christians, consider the elderly around you. Consider those of low income. Consider the single parents who are sick and caring for their children. Who are those people in your immediate reach? How can you help them? Do they have enough food or other needed supplies? Do they have lines of communication to you and to others to get help if they need it? You see, if verse 19 of our text is our hope, then the effect in our lives will be to love others. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, Paul writes, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look each of you not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
I read an article in Christianity Today this week online that spoke of this in the very present moment. Listen as we close to how the author of this article puts it. We are reminded that the gospel calls us to live sacrificially in the face of crisis. That although fear can threaten to flood our hearts and tempts us to isolate and hoard, scripture anchors our hope in a God who is greater than the pain we endure in this life. History reveals how more than storms we must weather, there are windows of opportunity to minister in times of calamity. In doing so, we testify to the truth that this world is not our home. We are citizens of another. Brothers and sisters, that sounds a lot like the pastor. Here, we have no lasting city, he writes in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14. Here, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.